Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider a novel that uses magical realism to explore issues of belonging and identity. The novel we're talking about today is Gold Diggers by Sanjana Sethian. It came out last spring, and as soon as we read the reviews, we knew we wanted to talk to Sanjana about it. Gold Diggers is about two Indian-American families, first in the Bush-era Atlanta suburbs and 10 years later in Silicon Valley. Neil, the narrator and the son in one of the families, is a kid when we meet him. His parents are immigrants with very high expectations for him, but he's kind of a slacker. He wants to be ambitious, but mostly he just wants his neighbor, Anjali, who's the daughter in the other family. It turns out Anjali and her mother have a secret. She and her mother have been brewing an ancient alchemical potion from stolen gold that harnesses the ambition of the jewelry's original owner. Anjali's been drinking it to get ahead in school and get into Harvard. When Neil joins in, things begin to spiral. Doesn't that sound great? (laughs) It's a really fun book. And before we dig in... Ugh, a dump bump. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was kind of clever. Before we (laughs) dig in, a few words about Sanjana. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, an alumna of the Clarion Writers Workshop, and a former Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. She's worked as a journalist in San Francisco and in Mumbai with nonfiction bylines for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Vox, Time, Food and Wine, and more. Her award-winning short fiction appears in Conjunctions, Boulevard, Joyland, Salt Hill, and The Master's Review. Gold Diggers is Sanjana's debut novel. Booksellers named it an indie next pick, and Mindy Kaling's production company is adapting it for a TV series, with Sanjana co-writing the adaptation and Mindy Kaling herself set to executive produce. So let's get to the interview. We started by talking with Sanjana about her fantastic book cover. Can I just say I adore the cover of your book? The colors, the saffrons, the celadons, the orange, and the combination of images. There, for people who haven't seen it, there are images of houses and also shovels and pickaxes, you know, as in gold digging. In my opinion, it manages to say India and American suburbia all at the same time. <laughs> it's it's just fabulous. Can you tell us about the making of it? And and also how do you feel about it? I love it. And it's Basically, I couldn't say it better than you just said it. It was this question of how to indicate that there were going to be elements of India in there, but it's not like an Indian novel. And I think, unfortunately, the publishing industry has a history of marketing Indian novels a certain way with like paisley prints on the cover, like a woman pulling a headscarf over her head. And for writers from the continent of Africa, putting like just this sort of like general landscape on the cover with like a tree or like a lion. And then for writers from East Asia, putting like a faceless woman with wavy black hair um, that indicates something about inscrutability. Like they're just frankly, these like super racist image tropes that publishing has a history of 
pushing onto writers of color. And so I was lucky to have a series of conversations with my publisher, with my editor, talking about how to indicate the themes of the book without sort of like reiterating the old, um, just the old tired image vocabulary. We saw a bunch of designs. A lot of them weren't quite getting it right. And so in the end, we actually started working with a designer from India. I knew of their work uh, because they sell some graphic art in this little store um, in my old neighborhood in Mumbai where I used to live. And I loved their work because they basically take 1980s or just late 20th century kitsch, like campy products, like matchbox art Mm -hmm. that appears, you know, on the back of trucks in India, in old advertisements, and they kind of reinvent it and refresh it. So we had them take one of their existing matchbox art styles and basically fill it in with these kind of nods to various components of the book, the motifs of American suburbia, of lemons, which play an important role in the book, of the gold jewelry, of the gold rush stuff that you mentioned, the pickaxe and the shovel. And really the only way to get that kind of result and get as beautiful a cover as we got, I think, is to listen to writers who, you know, we all have a very particular style. So that same intensity has to be brought to bear on the cover. Um, Yeah, I'm so happy with where we wound up. Yeah, and so great that your publisher allowed you to do that because most of the time, publishers don't. Authors don't have input into their covers. So really glad you did this time. So the book is largely about ambition and especially the ambition of immigrants. Can you share your thoughts about the internal and external forces that shape ambition? Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that kind of in my in the narrow experience that ended up shaping the book, I think there are so many iterations of ambition that it's hard to speak to it super broadly. But I have spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about the way ambition functioned in my corner of the Indian diaspora. And it came from both community kind of standards. Um, I think there is like this erroneous picture of the tiger parent breathing down your neck and yelling that you have to get into the best school. And while that's sometimes, you know, an accurate portrayal, really, it's something more sort of insidious and pernicious. It's the fact that the entire Indian diaspora, or much of it in the US, is shaped by an immigration process that demands that people my parents' age and new immigrants have to be, quote unquote, good enough. They have to pass a lot of tests and hurdles in order to get the visa and then get the green card and get the job that's going to sponsor them. And so with all of that kind of constant striving and hustle, like, of course, you're going to pass some of that on to your kids and your community. Like, it's more implicit than anything. It's not always caricature-ish, you know, shoving your kid in extra math classes, though that happened too. So that's the kind of external thing that you're talking about. But then there's this much more complex internal kind of battle, I think. And that's where the book really is ultimately interested. You know, we begin with the external circumstances of a community that relies on ambition to make itself. But internally, I was just much more interested in the inner lives of characters who are defined by their want, not even necessarily a traditional ambition to 
have the best job, but just the desire to remake yourself, the desire to know yourself, the desire to finally feel confident, especially in a new country. That's where sort of the lines between ambition and lust and desire and greed all blur into one another. And I think that's sort of like the fertile terrain of so much American literature that I was really interested in exploring. Do you think ambition is a finite resource the way that gold is? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I haven't thought of it in in those terms exactly. I do think that there is a sense that it can run out, not necessarily because it's finite, but because it's like it takes so much energy to keep generating it, like you lose the power to keep making yourself want more. And I think growing up, I felt like it was on me to keep producing this desire and drive and then kind of rely on that drive to get me through the next debate tournament or test or get me to college. And then at some point, you you lose the will to keep making that. So maybe the will to to be ambitious is a little more finite or has limitations. Mm. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> speaking, speaking from thinking back on my high school and college years, which we don't need to get into, but <laughs> there's, there's an addictive quality to gold in your story that affects some characters, but not others. Neil never stops craving it and develops an addiction to drugs. Anjali and Lyle destroy their health through alchemy. Do you think ambition can be addictive in a similar way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's kind of one of the key questions the novel asks is, okay, what do we do when we depend on this substance, gold, ambition? What do we do when we depend on that to kind of survive as a community, as a culture? But it also clearly poisons you. Um, I've grown up seeing that. And I, I saw it in the Indian American community that I belong to, but I've also seen it just among sort of anyone who's striving. I saw it in the tech world when I was working in Silicon Valley. I saw it on campus when I went to college. I saw it among kids who were maybe like the first generation in their family to get to college. It took so much to get them there. Um, And then at some point, all of that intensity turned on them and could do a real number on their mental health and just their sense of self. So Yeah, that's the question, though. The book isn't explicitly condemning that ambition because it also, I think, acknowledges that so many of us need it to be who we are. In the book, gold made by Indians is especially powerful. Why is that? Well, some of it is just like the book that I wanted to write was basically about the Indian American community from the inside out. I wasn't really interested in writing about a world outside that. Um, You all have seen A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers movie, right? Of Mm -hmm. course, yes. (laughs) I think that's my favorite Coen Brothers movie of all time. It's probably one of my favorites too. Yeah. Do you remember the little parable, the rabbinical parable called The Goy's Heath, where um, the main character keeps going to see the rabbi and the rabbi tells him the story about the goy's teeth. And he's like, there was a goy who had like Hebrew letters on the inside of his teeth. The main character sits there and listens. And he's like, they tell the story of the goy's teeth. And the character's like, well, so what happened to the goy? And the, the rabbi's like, the goy, who cares? And 
that is something that my my roommate, uh, who is a Jewish American novelist, uh, my roommate at the time was always like, that's what you have to be able to do when you write this story. You just have to do the equivalent of the goy who cares. Like it's it's a story about the sort of like internal trials and tribulations of a very particular community. And like the earlier you can commit to that and accept that, and the more you can sort of decide that your particular story has access to universal story, like the sooner you'll be able to write the book that you want to write. Julie, do you have a favorite Coen Brothers movie? Yes, Fargo is one of my favorite movies of all time. And Frances McDormand in Fargo is one of my favorite performances of all time. Ah, yes. So, so, so good. I have so many close seconds. I love Coen Brothers movies. But A Serious Man is definitely closest to my heart. For people who haven't seen it, it's a retelling of the Job story, which is my favorite Bible story. And even though it's set in 1960s Minnesota, which is when and where the Coen brothers grew up, to me, it feels exactly like my Jewish experience growing up in 1980s New Jersey. Oh my God, Eve, that is bleak. But... Yeah, bleak, but true. <laughs> okay, and, and really interesting. Um, we talk later in the interview about the connection between Jews and Indians as immigrant success stories. But I relate viscerally to what Sanjana's already said about finding the limitations of ambition. I'm Jewish and the daughter of an immigrant father, and I was obsessed in high school with getting the highest grades, never making a mistake, doing the best that I could possibly do. That continued for a while in college, but by senior year, I was pretty much done. And then I started law school, and my first year... While pretty much everyone else was freaking out, I was in four different plays. These are <laughs> law school drama society plays. They are not ambitious plays. I had no illusions that I was going to make it on Broadway. <laughs> Ted Cruz was actually in one of these plays, but that is a story for another day. I will say, I don't think my family experienced the external pressure that Sanjana describes of new immigrants needing to be good enough. I think we were protected from that, probably in large part because we're white. Can I push back on that for a minute? I, I do agree all of this is easier for white people, but didn't your father and his parents immigrate to Louisiana in 1936, where there was, I think it's fair to say, a greater than zero amount of anti-Semitism? And then they worked seven days a week to build a business and become respected members of the community and send their kids to amazing schools. It certainly sounds to me like there may have been some external pressure there. It's funny, you know, I've asked my dad about anti-Semitism and he insists that they did not experience it in Baton Rouge. My grandmother and aunt and uncle also always insisted that Baton Rouge was very good to the family. I mean, you know, the country club was closed to Jews and sororities and fraternities were closed to Jews. You know, there was that sort of thing. But remember, my family came from Germany in the 1930s. So I think those kinds of restrictions really felt like nothing to them, just yeah. too trivial to even think about. And now, <laughs> granted, the KKK did march outside the store, our store, telling people to boycott it. And the KKK were probably responsible for throwing a firebomb through a store window. Um, okay, sure, Julie, are you, are you hearing <laughs> yourself? <laughs> right. We're not 100% sure who did that, but it was okay. probably the case. Okay, so somebody did. Somebody threw a firebomb through the window, right? That's true. So it's complicated, but that seems to me to be an example of the external world not wanting to us to succeed financially, which I don't think is quite what Sanjana has in mind. Anyway, regardless whether I'm extending a family history of denial or not, it did 
always feel to me like the ambition was mostly from within the family. Yeah. Well, it can be so hard to tell when something is internal or external. And that's one of the great things about this book. Sanjana takes on these complexities. Another idea she explores is, as one of the characters says, imagine yourself making use of all you took. To me, that statement, that is both tantalizing and scary, as in, wow, wouldn't that be amazing, making use of all you took? And, oh my God, the pressure, you know, <laughs> to making use of all you took. So we asked Sanjana how she felt about that idea. Here's what she said. I think it's sort of the question that is, in my mind, facing the second generation Indian American community in the U.S. I'm not sure that everyone realizes that it's the question, but in in my like arrogant uh, uh, assertion, like it's the most important question. And I'll say what I mean by that. I think Indian Americans, we often tell a story of ourselves that's like, my parents got here fresh off the boat. They had $60 in their pocket. They made it from scratch. And like, now look where I am. I graduated from Yale and like, America is mine. I'm going to run the show. I think that's like a deeply flawed and actually historically inaccurate picture of where our community has come from. Um, Most people who got here got here because they already had some kind of pre-existing power, privilege, something back on the subcontinent. Again, not true of everyone, but it is true of a lot of people who are telling that story. And we were let in in order to basically prove that we could be the quote-unquote model minority. We were admitted to America in many ways as the test case for when we let in just the best, when we let in just the most educated, you can create this like model class. And I think the big reckoning that a lot of Indian Americans have to have now is realizing that what we took is this extreme sort of position of power that many of us didn't realize we were taking on, in part because we're also still outsiders. I talked to an Asian American interviewer early about this book, and he had kind of a, a really harsh reading of my characters that I sort of liked. I didn't totally agree with it, but he was like, do you think they're all just greedy? Like, they just came to America because they wanted more money. Like, don't you think that's just greedy? Hmm. And I was like, yeah, fair point. That's not exactly how I think of it. But like, I think that's a fair reading. And so I think we need to individually and then also collectively think about what it means to have come here for economic opportunity. And then now that a lot of us have that economic success, like, what do we do with it? So I've had a bunch of different people sort of respond to that particular refrain. And some have read it as, oh, it's about sort of an obligation to our ancestors. And for me, it's like much sort of harsher and more cynical than that. It's like, we were outsiders. Now we're not. What do we do with that? Yeah. I loved this observation that Neil makes about his sister, Prachi. He says, I'd always thought time eventually forced even the most practical people to introspect. But my sister had cheerfully attenuated her inner life with each year. And I have to confess, this is a question I ask myself all the time, which is, is it possible that the unexamined life is not only worth living, but better? (laughs) And I'm wondering, because Prachi has a really good time, you know, (laughs) she's really happy. Um, So what do you think? I think that is like a fascination that writers have always had, which is like, we are a neurotic bunch, right? We 
are constantly thinking and overthinking. And then we look across the room and we see the person who doesn't seem to have our neuroses and we wonder if it's better. I don't actually think it is. One of the things that this book in particular is interested in is how much can be going on below the surface that can be doing damage to you even when you don't know it. Prachi is one of the people who appears to be okay, but also there, you know, like she's bulimic in high school. She's seems to be sort of like really dependent on the marriage that the whole second half is building to. And I'm not convinced that she will be okay if things start to go poorly in that marriage. Like, I just don't think she's prepared because I don't think she has a relationship to herself. Mm -hmm. And Anita's character is someone who experiences that as well. Like she doesn't really have that in her life in high school. And then she goes to college and she suffers what the kids at Stanford call duck syndrome. Like she seems okay on the top of the water, like floating, but she's really paddling like crazy to stay afloat. And so I think there are all these examples that maybe writers just cling to because they confirm our belief that an inner life is good. But I, I think it catches up with you. I loved the story about the Bombayan gold digger and how it gets retold differently throughout the book. So can you talk about the role that that story plays within your story? Yeah. So in the first half of the novel, Neil, when he's a teenager, comes across this story, possibly apocryphal, of a figure known as the Bombayan gold digger. Um, And he comes across it in much the same way I did um, in a German travelogue set in the gold rush, you know, 1849, 1851, somewhere in that window. The story is of a man who is purportedly from India, who is accused of stealing gold and of trying to pull one over on a bunch of white people in the gold rush. And it's a really fascinating story because we don't know if this man's really Indian. We don't know what he was doing in California if he was Indian, like how he got there. It would have been extremely difficult to get to California from India. So this, there's this like fascinating mystery around just how could these two wildly different histories of 19th century India and 19th century America, how could they possibly intersect? And Neil becomes obsessed with this story when he's a grad student 10 years later studying history. And he just isn't able to prove that this person really existed, um, which is the same experience that I had when I was researching and trying to follow up on the original vignette. There was so little information about whether or not there were Indians in the gold rush. And that kind of drama haunts Neil on a material level and also on this kind of spiritual level because it speaks to the absence of Asian Americans in American history, The this idea that a lot of us were here but were literally in the margins of history, are very rarely recorded. Like you can't hear the voices of Asian Americans in American history quite as easily as you can hear these sort of more dominant and powerful white voices. Yeah. So the subject of Indians and Jews comes up a lot in the book. Can you say a bit about the connection between them as immigrant success stories? Yeah. I mean, I just grew up in a lot of communities that were like all of my friends were Jewish. I think that we're both communities who are seen as having like a lot of privilege and in some cases really do, but also are sort of 
at the risk of always being called the outsider, right? It's like really easy for that power or privilege to be like taken away and otherized. And like, we know that racism and anti-Semitism still persist and are in many ways getting worse. And so I think that dance is probably like a shared thing. And I think Indian American literature today is potentially where Jewish American literature was in the time of like Roth, Bellow, Ozick, this literature of assimilation, of having the kind of outsider's eyes, but also understanding the inside, understanding Americana in a way that like people who take it for granted, people who really take America for granted may not see it. Like there's a kind of like fresh, freshness of eyes available. Yeah. So the idea of belonging is so important in the book. Can you talk about the connection between belonging and history and how the quest for belonging affects different generations? Yeah. um, I think the book follows like a number of generations. um, If we're going to count the gold rush character in there, Um, this is someone who left a colonized country in some ways, just to have a shot at making it on his own terms. So belonging there is like, just give me a chance to not be downtrodden, to not live underfoot. In Neil's imagination, that Indian Gold Rush character becomes a merchant. He becomes someone who kind of helps serve the growing boom economy in California. There's a way that money, enterprise, and power allow that particular character to belong. And I think there's something similar about the generation of my parents and Neil's parents, the kind of post-1965, 1980s Indians who arrive in the U.S. Um, You know, in many cases, they're leaving a closed economy um, and they are excited to like live in a free market. It's like, you know, immigrants from the Soviet Union in the 90s. It's not quite as extreme, but just the sense of like, look at all the choices in the grocery store. Look at how much freedom we have in like the way we spend our money and the way we get our money. And so that's one way that those characters think of belonging. Neil's concern and my concern is this more like second generation question of belonging, which is like, okay, the the money's not enough. The like having the house in the suburbs, that doesn't help. Being a respectable member of the upper middle class, like that doesn't help. Why don't I feel at home here still? And so for those characters, the characters in the second generation, belonging becomes this question of, is it enough to get into the fancy school? No, it isn't. So what then? And so they start to look for belonging in each other. Um, you know, the question of love is kind of a big part of the, the story of belonging in the book. Neil and Anita have this like on and off sort of romance story that threads through the novel. And I think they're searching for belonging in each other. And I don't know that anyone fully finds it. There's so much to ponder here. I keep thinking about the question that Sanjana said was, for her, the most important question for second-generation immigrants, which was, now that you have economic success, what do you do with it? And I wonder how that question of obligation to your community relates to a sense of belonging. I understand this feeling that Sanjana was talking about of sort of, okay, we have economic success. Thank you truly and deeply for all you've done, mom and dad. But while a certain level of economic success is maybe necessary, you need a bedrock feeling of stability. At the same time, for purposes of belonging and fulfillment, 
economic success is probably not sufficient. The next generation has to figure out what's still missing. That's one of the ways that the American dream can get tricky. What happens when you achieve the economic success part of the American dream, but you still don't feel like America has embraced you? You don't feel like it's your true home. What then? And it's so interesting to hear Sanjana's thoughts about it and to read Gold Diggers. I'm so glad that she came on the show. Oh, I am too. It was a great conversation. And that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Sanjana on Twitter at Sanjana Suthian and online at sanjana.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love and listen to Book Dreams with Julie and